This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women and addiction. Welcome back to another episode of the Worth Recovery Podcast. I'm Amy. I'm your host here, and I'm a sex addict, and I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. I'm excited today to add another woman's experience and story in sex addiction recovery to our women's story series. I just think it's really important that we have more women's stories to hear from. And today I am excited and just really um, humbled that Lisa has, um, decided to share her story with us. So welcome Lisa. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks. We're excited to be here. What made you decide that now is the right time for you to share your story? Uh, I would say, um, so obviously I was prompted by an ask. Uh, I saw your ask on Facebook and in typical Lisa fashion, just like, said, sure, I'll do it. I didn't even really think about it. It was just like, yes, I'll do it. And then I was like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? Um, <laughs> what did I just agree to? <laughs> exactly. I wasn't sure. I was like, I'm not even, oh my gosh. Okay. Well, and, and then the more I pondered it, the more I uh, found tranquility in knowing that by sharing my story, probably uh, two, three, who knows how many um, women will be able to pull bits and pieces from it and identify with it and go and be able to say, oh my gosh, I thought it was just me or, oh, I'm so, I feel so relieved that if that wasn't just my experience. Um, and for me, even when I began recovery and would hear people sharing their stories or sharing um, where they are in their recovery journey, it was super comforting for me to not feel alone um, because addiction is uh, a disease of isolation. And uh, when you don't feel alone, it just feels so much more surmountable. Like you can, you can beat this, you can come out of it. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. I love that idea that addiction is a battle of ice is a disease of isolation. And, and you're right. The more that we can connect with other people and not feel alone, the more likely we are to continue in recovery and to change and to do the things that we want to do. So thank you for being willing, even if it was kind of a whim in the moment <laughs> to say yes. Um, I, I often say that when I hear the story of another woman um, in recovery, that there's a, a piece of me that heals. And, and I think that's because 
sex addiction is so different for women and so personal for women. And we don't, we don't hear enough of each other's stories or understand enough of what we go through as women in this disease. And so I'm just grateful for your willingness to share today. Thank you. So let's just jump right in. Okay. So when, when did you first decide that you had quote, like a problem that this was going to be a problem for you? Um, so I recognized it was a problem. Um, I would say in early 1990, um, a series of events of events had happened in my life that uh, left me a single mom with mm. two small kids, and uh, I lost my job, and so I was home a lot. And in the late '80s, early '90s, one nine hundred numbers were all the rage. Oh and yeah, totally. I was so bored. I felt so alone. I felt so empty inside. Um, and I discovered 1-900 numbers and I discovered that for half an hour, an hour, and unfortunately sometimes multiple hours per day or night, uh, I wasn't so alone. I didn't feel, uh, like I was all by myself. Like I was pathetic. Literally, I felt pathetic. And so sure, the first uh, month was great. And then the phone bill came and it was several mm. thousand dollars. And I didn't have a job. <laughs> and I could not pay that bill. So my phone was turned off. So then I used my brother's name and got phone service under my brother's name. And a month later, when the phone bill came and it was several thousand dollars, then the phone was turned off again. And after, after the second time my phone service was turned off, I was panicked. I didn't know what to do on a daily basis. I didn't, I, I was just swirling in this like emptiness, this like dark emptiness. And like, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, so I had, to, I was trying to figure out how to cobble together enough money to pay this bill that I had run up in my brother's name. And, um, in order to do that, I couldn't afford my rent. And so I had to move and I moved someplace mm -hmm. else that was cheaper. Um, and, uh, started thinking back, um, because I didn't have a phone and I couldn't get a phone. And like my landlord would ask me, Lisa, how come you don't have a phone? I mean, I'm trying to reach you and I would make up stories and all kinds of things that I think back on now, the things I said, and I'm like, nobody could have possibly believed that. It was such a line <laughs> of garbage. And she probably thought, what is wrong with this woman? Uh, so um, after several months of, being in this apartment with my kids, uh, trying to do it on my own. I got a small part-time job to bring in some money. Uh, but again, I was in this cycle of 
I didn't have enough money to pay the rent. And the lady who lived on the third floor of the building I lived in was also a single mom struggling, trying to make ends meet. So the landlord said, yeah, so if you move in with Susie, then the two of you would be in a better position to be more financially stable. And I was like, oh, okay, that's fantastic, right? So we move up to the third floor and we're staying with her and she has a phone. And what does Lisa do? Mm. <laughs> Lisa runs up Susie's <laughs> bill. Um and even while I was doing it, while I'm on the phone for hours and hours with people all over the country, uh, men all over the country, um, there's a part of my brain saying, you are going to get caught. You are going to mm -hmm. be in so much trouble. You are creating a mess. But then there's a part of my brain going, but we'll figure it out when we get there. Yeah. We can't yeah. leave this thing right now. We'll figure that out. Well, we just got to stay in this thing right now. Um, so that actually led out of fear um, and out of a incredible deep-seated need to be wanted, to be um, important to somebody. Um, I made this mm, connection, I guess, uh, mm -hmm. with somebody who lived in another state. And so I strategically planned this. Uh, my kids and I are going to get out of Dodge and go to this other state to be with this man who I've never met. Um, and I'm going to take my two small children and I'm going to get out of here before the phone bill comes. <laughs> I was um, going to say before the phone bill. Yes, before the phone bill. And that's what I did. I, uh, I peaced out, moved to Kentucky. And well, that was just a whole whole other ridiculous <laughs> shit show but yeah but yeah and that but it didn't it was like I was hypnotized I was I was the the draw was so much stronger than the logic like there was no logic in anything I did yeah wow um did your did your brother like you said that you ran up that bill in your brother's name. Just curious, like, did he find out? Did he? My was there mom a problem did. with him. I, okay. I don't know how, but my mom found out somehow. I don't know how. Um, he and I, like, I would venture. He was seventeen, sixteen or seventeen when I did that. So, oh I would wow, okay. Venture to say, if I were to ask him, hey, do you remember this thing? I don't even <laughs> know that he would remember it really. Mm. But mm -hmm. I'm not willing to ask. I <laughs> don't blame you. Yeah. <laughs> so you moved to Kentucky with mm -hmm. this guy that you had never met, but yeah. like just had a phone interaction with. Mm -hmm. And, and what happened from there? Oh, gosh. Did it solve so it moving to Kentucky? No, not really. Uh, <laughs> so I moved there for, I guess the the whole thing about uh, the one nine hundred numbers was you could be anybody you wanted to be, right? Um, mm -hmm. I could be beautiful and sexy and wonderful and everything that I really wasn't, and he could be dashing and employed and respectable, <laughs> everything he wasn't. And mm. so I get there, and he has no job, and he's living with his grandmother, and we can't go there, and. I arrived with like maybe a thousand dollars 
which went really, really quickly for hotel rooms. And she really wasn't interested in there being any little children around. And I come with two little girls and it just, you know, money went fast. His grandmother was, bless her heart. She was um, very kind. And I remember hearing her, uh, we went over to her house one day for a meal. And I remember hearing her say, what are you going to do? You, this poor woman has children. You need to just set her and her kids free and stop jerking them around. And so he literally did like they gave me, he, they gave me a ride. They lived in a very small, small, small town in Kentucky. They gave me a ride into Lexington where, uh, I was able to find a shelter for homeless families. And that was where they left us with our stuff at the Salvation Army in downtown Lexington with my two small children. And that was, I had not been raised like that. Um, it was completely scary, crazy, <sighs> insanity that I never in a million years would have imagined was part of my journey. Yeah. So yeah. It was insane. Right. And very, very scary and traumatic. Very much. Wow. Yeah. So things go on for you. So that's kind of, you know, how you, when you first decided you had a problem, right. It was raising up these phone bills over and over again, and then ending up at a shelter in Kentucky. Yes. Wow. How did you decide or what happened from there that helped you to come to the conclusion? And maybe it's, maybe it's a a longer story. What happened from there to help you come to the conclusion that it was love or sex type addiction? Like what happened from there? How did you get there? So while there in Kentucky, I met somebody who, um, we started dating, started living together, like after dating for a week. I mean, like I got a job, I got a house, um, met, met Norman. Um, we had been together for a short period of time. Um, I was working in a plasma center where people go to sell their plasma and I was doing a donor check and, you know, there was a new donor. And so there were certain protocols and checks that we had to go through to make sure they had not been, um, Uh, rejected for any sort of test results or uh, Mm -hmm. poor veins or things like that. And I come across a card with Norman's name and birth date on it. And I lose it right there in my place of employment. And I take it to my manager and I ask her, Hey, what, uh, what does this mean? And she's like, you know, I can't tell you anything. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. Um, This is my boyfriend. We're living together. I need to understand what's going on. So she arranged for him to come in on Monday And, uh, she told him that he tested positive for HIV and that's why he could, he had a rejection card there. And she gave me the rest of the day off and said both of us needed to go over to the health department, uh, to be tested. And we did. And, uh, they, at first, at that time, the protocol was not to test for six months after possible exposure. And I said, but you don't understand. 
I think that I'm pregnant. And so, you know, haggling back and forth, finally they let me test. Um, and then, um, I tried to go and get one of the free pregnancy tests and they were like, no, you have to wait a week. And I'm like, okay. So I went back the next week, got the pregnancy test and I was pregnant. And then on Friday I had to call in and get my test results. And I found out that I was HIV positive as well. We both were. So, um, the few so, friends, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, keep going. Keep going. So the few friends that I had made that I, I considered my trusted friends, um, I was like, you guys aren't going to believe this. This is, this is what's happened. This is what's, what's happening for me. And they were like, get away from him. Look what he did to you, blah, blah, blah. And they were all bashing him and telling me to run for the hills and all of this. And <clears throat> excuse me. I was like, no, I, this is my fault. I, I could have, I could have said we had to use condoms. I could have been smarter. I could have done these things. Um, and so I committed to him to stay with him. We committed to each other to stay together. We're going to have a child, the whole thing. Um, but we quickly led a very nomadic life in my early twenties. Um, quickly moved back to my home state because he not only was HIV positive, but he was already very, very sick. Um, he had, he had lived a very, oh, wow. very, uh, risque lifestyle prior to meeting me. And when I look back on it right now and think about the, the stories he told me on the way he survived, um, as when he first turned 18, he was raised in foster care and aged out mm -hmm. of the system and the things that he did to get by. Um, I think he was probably a sex addict as well. Um, mm -hmm. And even as our relationship went on, there were times where he would leave me and the kids and go, you know, find some other girl to be with. And I'd go... I was so addicted to not being alone, even though it was a horrible, toxic relationship, I would hunt him down and beg him to come back. Like literally walk the streets, searching for him and beg him to come back. And I, I think I, if I stop and think about it right now and could see myself doing that, I'm like, oh my gosh, this poor woman has such a problem. What is wrong with her? Does she not understand she's worth more? And, and that's the key. I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. I had no clue that I had any worth, that I deserved anything more than what I was getting or fighting for. Um, I, I spent the first 40 three years of my life like that, like chasing after something that I felt like I needed it to fill this void inside of me. And even if I only got it, if it was sex or attention or conversation, whatever it was, if it was like just for an hour or two hours and I was elated and on top of the world and everything was fantastic and magical. And then it ended, then it was like, super depressed, super self-hate, self-doubt, self-loathing, beating myself up. I have to go find that thing again. I have to go get that high again. Where do I do it? How do I do it? And, and it just 
kept going. And I knew I like I would never tell anybody that I was beating the streets searching for my boyfriend. Like, cause he didn't come home last night, but I have to go find him because I can't be alone. And I have, you know, he has to come back because he just has to. Right. Right. Wow. Okay. So you move back. He is symptomatic and struggling mm-hmm. and still going out. How mm-hmm. long did that relationship last? How long did you con- continue? Uh, so that was in early 1991. Um, Easter of 92, he asked me to marry him. Um, you know, I had my son who at birth uh, tested positive, but by the time he was three months old, he tested negative. So he's a strapping young man with a family of his own now and completely healthy. Mm. Um, I was going to ask, that's so exciting. Yes. Um, wow. So we got married um, in August of 92. And then uh, he passed away on Father's Day, uh, 1993. And in typical Lisa fashion. I need to run from anything that's uncomfortable. I don't want to stay there because it's uncomfortable. That's where we shared a home together. That's where our lives were. Um, That's where I'd spent two and a half years taking care of him. And I didn't want to be there anymore. And my oldest daughter at the time was seven and she was very sad. Her, Her and Norman were very close. She was very, very sad. So she went and got a big salad bowl out of the cabinet and wrote down on little pieces of paper, all of the states in the United States. And she folded them up and she brought me this bowl and she said, mom, pick. And so I picked one and I'm like, Ooh, Washington state. What does that mean? And she said, that's where we're going to go. And I'm like, what? I don't know anybody in Washington. She goes, but mom, you know, Norman's not here and everybody's so sad and this is all so sad and we should go someplace else. And Mm. at that moment I was like, Oh my gosh, she is like me. Like she doesn't want to be in the sadness. I don't want to be in the sadness. Oh, it's just like me. Oh, seven year old child. You make complete sense. Yes. Let's move to Washington. (laughs) So some friends of ours happened to be over when she came up with this crazy idea and they're like, you know what? we'll go with you. Let's, let's just all go together. And I was like, okay, we're all crazy, but we're all going to do it. And so we drove wow. across the country from the Midwest out to Washington state in August of 1993. And I've been here ever since. So I've shed mm-hmm. that nomadic gene somehow. Um, <laughs> That's impressive. That's super yes. impressive. Yes. And so I lost, so I lost my husband in June I moved here in August and by October I was in a new relationship and I have Mm. a really great picker. Let me just tell you, my picker is awesome. So my first (laughs) husband was an alcoholic and um, physically and verbally abusive to me. Um, My second husband was, uh, I believe, a sex addict and um, died in 1993 so then I'm in a relationship with another alcoholic 
who's not a violent alcoholic, just a functioning alcoholic and very distant, disconnected um, person. But to be with somebody distant and disconnected is better than to be with nobody at all in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. um, for the first few years, yeah, yeah. For the first few years, it was okay. um, Ish. Uh, But I would say the last three or four years of that marriage, um, sadness, emptiness, longing to feel wanted, to feel needed, to um, be important to somebody just became overwhelming. And so I would go to work, come straight home, get on the computer, be in chat rooms. Mm. And I got so ridiculously bold. I was in the dining room having chat conversations, looking for people to hook up with while he was in the dining room and in the living room behind me. Um, I I didn't even care. I was so disrespectful and so mean. I was mean. That was just a mean thing. I just didn't even care because it became Mm. all about me and needing to satisfy that that longing, that yearning that was inside of me. And um, when I look back now and think about it, it was so strange to me. Um, these people who I was reaching out to, to hook up with, I would tell them, by the way, you need to know I'm HIV positive. And they're like, okay, well, we just won't do this, this, and this, but we can do this, this, and this. And I was like, we don't have to really do anything because, you know, we'll just sit with me. <laughs> but they're, you know, that wasn't what they were looking for. So, yeah. Um, wow. So you, I mean, in in a very short few years, I'm listening to the story and I'm like, okay, so first divorce, um, you know, then you leave and end up in Kentucky and then you end up HIV positive and pregnant. Hope, thankfully, your your son does not contract HIV from you in that way. Your move, he your hus- second husband passes away, um, and now you're in a third marriage, mm-hmm. and um, and HIV positive. Did mm-hmm. did your I mean have like you weren't having symptoms at that point in time, obviously. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you're telling people like, Hey, I'm HIV positive and they're just brushing it off. Like, okay, well, doesn't matter. We're going to do this anyway. Yeah. They just put up boundaries around what they were willing to do. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So Lisa, that's, that's a lot of trauma. (laughs) Yeah. Really quickly. Right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So what happens in this third marriage? So, oh, and wait, hang on. Have you labeled it anything yet? I mean, you know, you have these problems and you know, you have HIV at this point in your life or thinking like, were you saying like, oh, I have an addiction. Oh, I have this problem. Like had labels entered into anything yet? Or were you just considering Um, yourself kind of broken? I just knew I was super broken. I, uh, that there were the way I viewed love was you know in my head or like 
you know that love is supposed to be unconditional or you strive to find a love that's unconditional, but I had not found one. Like there were always conditions on the love. Like mm-hmm. I will love you if you do X, Y, Z for me. I will love you if, you know, you pay for this or whatever, right? It was never just, right. I love you, period, end of discussion. So I had not found that. I had not experienced that. And uh, in late 2010, one of my good friends um, who had, who knew me uh, in my marriage to my third husband, and she was like, you know, Lisa, you are always so sad. You're, I, I just, he makes you cry all the time. I just don't understand. You know, why do you stay? Why do you do this? And, and we had this whole conversation and she said, did you know that there are dating websites for people who are HIV positive? And I'm like, shut the front door. Really? Are you kidding me? (laughs) And she said, no, I'm serious. I've looked at them because I've been thinking about you and I've been so worried about you. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. So we set up this profile and I'm like, initially I'm like, Hey, this is pretty cool. I don't, I mean, I'm already on this site with all these other people who are HIV positive. So I don't have to do that uncomfortable disclosure thing and have that weird conversation. Everybody knows everybody's business basically. So this is, well, this is a whole nother pool of people to act out with. Oh my gosh, this is Mm. kind of fantastic. So I like emailed or, or, requested, I don't even know, I don't even remember what the right term is, but there were three particular individuals who caught my eye. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. hey, I like you. Hey, I like you. Hey, I like you. Well, one of them replied back to me and I was like, Mm. wow. Okay. So here we go. And he starts telling me about how like he's going to go on vacation with his parents and his daughter for his 40th birthday. They're going on a cruise. This was like in December uh, for the holidays. But when he comes back after the holidays, he'd love to get together and have a drink and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, okay, sure, cool. And so I'm still trolling this site all the while, <laughs> thinking I'm going to make some more connections. Um, and, and, you're still, and you're still married. And I'm still married. And okay. I'm, uh, and nothing's, it's just not happening. And I'm like, oh, these people will not real relationships and stuff. Oh, what the heck? Mm. So um, this man gets back from vacation and we set up an opportunity to get together and we sit down and he says, so I just, we had talked on the phone just a ton and we had sent Uh emails. He was on a ship, right? So I'm sending him all of these emails. And uh, so we sit down for our first date on new year's Eve, 2010. And he says, I just want to tell you something. And I'm like, okay. Um, He says, I think you're a really nice person. You seem like a really nice lady and I don't want to hurt you and I don't want to get my feelings hurt. So I'm going to tell you a whole bunch of stuff about me and I won't be sad or mad or, or upset if you tell me you want to walk out the door. And I was like, okay. And so he starts telling me. Uh, right. That's the loaded. Addict. Yeah. He starts oh, me he's, a he's a sex addict. And he's been in recovery for a year. And about how his sex addiction blew up his first marriage and all of this stuff about himself. And I'm like, all of a sudden, all of these light bulbs start going off above my head. And I'm like, 
oh my gosh, I'm not just this horrible, awful slut. I'm an addict. Mm. Oh my, it has, a, it has a name. It's a thing. It's a real thing. And I was just so shocked. I didn't even know what to think. I was just like, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to process this. I'm an addict. And it, it, it was like, wow, it was just like my, my mind was absolutely blown. And so he's a really nice guy. And I'm like, okay. And he says, if you don't run away, you know, after, after he's done talking, he's like, so I, I suppose you want to run away now. And I'm like, no, not really. Which was, I, I think, now that I think back and all of the work I've done, that was the relationship love addict in me saying, okay, this has 5% chance of working, but let's see, because I really don't want to be alone. So we're going to figure out if we can, how we can make this work. Yeah, so, how we can maximize that 5%, right? <laughs> yes. And so I said to him, you know, I really want to support you in your recovery. What can I do? And he says, oh, come to a speaker's meeting with me. And I'm like, okay. So I go to the speaker's meeting and I listen to everybody. And I listen to the speaker from COSA talk. And I'm like, hey, I should probably go to one of their meetings. Sounds like I might learn something about how to how to help my new friend, you know, through mm-hmm. his stuff. So, and understand more about what it is because I don't really know what it is, right? I mean, he's just told me what his experience as a sex addict was. I don't really know what one is because like this is all so brand new to me. Right. So I go to a few COSA meetings and I just, every time I would go, I would just like feel so uh, triggered from my first marriage because like certain emotions, certain body language, certain facial expressions, certain intonations in people's voice will trigger me and and I get scared because Mm. my first husband, if certain, you know, like if he got frustrated and I could physically see frustration being displayed, I knew that right after that was coming physical violence towards me. So anytime somebody would like get up or be really animated in their anger or frustration, it was very triggering for me. So I was like, I am, mm-hmm. I don't know how long I can do this. These people are like super bitter, super angry. They're all very hurt. And I've never been hurt by my friend's addiction. Like that was his ex-wife who got hurt by his actions. So this is, this mm-hmm. feels really weird. I'm not sure if I should be here. And the next week, as I was walking into the COSA meeting, I noticed that they had an SAA meeting just up the hall. And so I went in there and said, just taking a shot to see if that fit better. Hmm. And like 10 minutes into the meeting, I'm just in the corner, just bawling my face off. And I'm like, these are my people. Oh, oh my people, this is where I'm supposed to be. So yeah. that was in early February of 2011. The last time I had acted out was November 4th, 2010. So I'd already had two months sober and I found, um, I went to that group for several weeks and then I found a home group uh, closer to where I lived um, because the COSA peace wasn't so important anymore. I could find any SAA Mm -hmm. group that was near where I lived. So Mm -hmm. I got sober in that group, you know, understood sobriety, did my steps in that group. Um, and, uh, just have been sober ever since. Wow. Wow. 
And how, how did that affect the marriage that you were in at the time? So, because I had told my friend that I was divorced, um, cause I was just looking for somebody to, somebody to act out mm-hmm. with. Um, now yeah. this is like going to be, well, this is going to be something. And so I had to say, Hey, um, by the way, um, no, I'm not divorced. And, um, mm-hmm. no, I actually still live with my husband and, uh, yeah. And come clean with all of that. And although all of that was like super uncomfortable feelings that I've never been good at sitting with and I've never been good at, uh, or had never been good is, is, is a better way to say that. I had never mm-hmm. been good at sitting in the uncomfortableness or being honest. Um, so to say that and to have him not go, oh, wow, no, yeah, get away. You know, this is this is not what I'm, I signed up for. Um, he just said to me, so do you plan on resolving that? And I'm like, yeah, I do. Hmm. And so I moved into my own place a few months later filed for divorce. Um, and then, well, he and I got married in 2012. Um, so we've been married since then. Um, and we Okay. Did, so oh, I'm sorry. Go keep going. Yeah. We did recovery together for a very long time. Um, and it worked for us for a really long time. Yeah. So this you're currently married to the man who introduced you to sex addiction concept and recovery. Correct. Okay. And so you kind of said like, you know, I just started and, and I got a home group and I did my steps and, and everything like that. And you've been sober since then. Like what, tell me a little bit about what that was like doing step work and kind of going through that process and, and what recovery was like, we, we kind of said it a little bit nonchalantly and I, I know that's not how it goes. So oh, yeah. tell me a little yeah. bit about your experience in that. Um, so I learned so much about myself, um, in doing my step work. I had a really great sponsor who got me through my first step. Um, and that was, doing that self-examination to actually put the connect the thoughts and feelings I had to why I had those thoughts and feelings. I had always, because of the way I'd lived my life, um, sort of nomadic, always incredibly poor. It was always just in survival mode. I was just always in survival mode. There was never any time to stop and think about this thing has just happened why did this thing happen to me? What choices did I make? What, what things in my past helped shape the process I go through when I make a choice? I, I never mm-hmm. had an opportunity to do that. It was just make a choice, mm-hmm. move forward, keep going. No time to look back, no time to process. We don't have that luxury. We got to keep going. So now right. my kids are all grown. They're all moved out at the, by the time I start recovery. So they're all adults and on doing their thing. And I rented a subway, a condo from a friend of mine. So I have this place that's all my own where I have never, right? Like I went from living in my parents' home to living in a group home, to living with my first husband, then my second husband, then my third husband, to 
living by myself. I had never lived by myself in 43 years. So it was the mm. first time I lived all by myself. And I was still like working poor. So like I didn't have any cable, didn't have anything fancy. So when I'd come home from work at night, there was all I could do was step work and read the green, read the book and think about who I am and what has happened in my life that has helped shape who I am and why I am the way I am. And it was... the biggest gift I've ever gotten in my whole life. Like I, I, I hate the fact that I'm an addict mm -hmm. in recovery. I hate that part about me, but had I not learned that what I was doing was a thing, that it was an addiction and that I could get help and that I could no longer act out and be okay and figure out how to be okay with who I was. I don't even know where I'd be. I really don't. Mm. <laughs> I would be yeah, right? a hot mess. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I pro it probably took me two years to do my fourth step because I was mm. so afraid of it. I, even just thinking about it right now, I feel like I'm going to cry. Um, mm. Because I had spent so much of my life thinking that everything that happened to me was my fault. I wasn't enough. And so therefore that happened to me or I was too much. And that happened to me. But how can I be too much and not enough at the same time? But I know that I am. So that's why these, mm -hmm. all these horrible things are happening. That's why I'm making all of these really poor choices. And that's why nobody wants me because I'm too much or they don't want me because I'm not enough. And um, it was so hard to do my four step and to like have those feelings and those thoughts and try to tease them out and try to understand them and try to get past them. Like giving my fourth step, that was a piece of cake. Like mm. I could tell anybody anything about myself. I'm like, I don't have anything to hide. I can tell you all my character flaws, all my everything. I don't care. But sitting with it and thinking about it and understanding its origins, that's what messes me up. And that's what makes me feel like so negative about myself. Yeah. Can you, can you shed some light or give us some examples? What, what happened in your life that you feel maybe contributed to developing this type of addiction? What are some of, just a few things maybe? Sure. So um, I was, uh, so I'm adopted. I was adopted as an infant. Um, and my parents who adopted me, they never, uh, it was always just common knowledge. I think probably by the time I was four or five years old, I knew that I was adopted. I thought it was super cool. I would go around school telling people, ha you were born, but I was adopted. They chose me. You know, I thought that was so cool. Um, and then when I was seven, my parents got divorced. My dad went away. Um, just like this mom who gave birth to me, but didn't want me. My dad went away. He must not want me. Um, and it was right about that time that I started to um, feel this really intense feeling of 
emptiness. There was a hole in me. There's something missing. And I would think about this person who gave birth to me and where is she and why did she give me away? And does she think of me? Does, is she alive? You know, all, just all the time, like daily. And then my birthday is in the fall. So that month of my birthday, um, as I grew older, it started to get more intense. And then after I had my first child, forget it. My kids knew mm-hmm. not to mess with me in October because I was just so emotionally fragile thinking like I've had this child and I know what it feels like and how could anybody give their child away? What is this person just evil or did somebody force her? I mean, I was just obsessed. Yeah. Um, my mom, um, so back a little bit. So then, so my parents get divorced. My mom gets into a very long-term relationship with somebody who's incredible and I adore. And he's like this great um, father figure role model person. And then they break up. So he goes away. Um, some family dynamics blew up. My dad wound up, we had this big arguments. My dad wound up hitting me. Um, I got put in protective custody and sent to a group home. Um, and the state made me and the social worker from the group home go to court like every six weeks or two months. Um, and the judge would say to my father, do you want to take Lisa home? And he would say no. And then they would ask my mom, do you want to take Lisa home? And she would say no. And so then that was just this other layer of reinforcement that parental love is not unconditional. Everything goes away. Nobody loves you. You know, it doesn't matter. You're just, nobody loves you. You are not enough and you are too much. That has like been my mantra forever. I'm not enough and I'm too much all at the same time. And then I get into this relationship with an old, my first husband was significantly older than me, physically abusive. So one minute he's telling me he loves me and the next minute he's beating me up. Um, Mm. And it's because I either didn't clean the house well enough or I'm making too much noise while I'm cleaning the house. I mean, just constant throughout my lifetime reinforcements. uh, You are too much. You are not enough. I am too much. I'm not enough. And so. um, So of course, like earlier you said, like I just had this hole in my soul and I was trying to fill it up with people who wanted me mm -hmm. and, you know, and of course, right. Listening to that, I, I really relate to the idea of not enough and too much all at the same time. And, and where does like that leaves you in that double bind? Like, where am I supposed to go with that? What am I supposed to do? Exactly. And and so we, we find, we dig out, we find a shadow place where we can be accepted and whether that's pornography or whether that's 900 numbers or whether that's hookup sites, we find a place where we can feel wanted mm-hmm. for whatever we have. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about <clears throat> your children. So, you know, you said at one point when you were talking about moving to Washington, like you had this revelation of like, wow, my seven year old daughter is me. Like she doesn't want to sit in these uncomfortable feelings. She doesn't, you know, want to do these things. And that they were grown when you started your own recovery. How mm-hmm. are 
your, if you don't mind talking about this, how are your relationships with your children? How are they, how are they doing and coping? And, um, and how, how's that for them? So, um, I, oddly enough, my in-laws know that I'm a recovering sex addict. Um, my own family, I have not disclosed to, um, and the strange thing, and I don't, you know, I would love to probably someday sit down and have a conversation with them about it. So I have three older children, um, 35, 33, and 29. So my okay. oldest daughter has been in one long-term relationship her whole life. Just mm-hmm. one. She is very particular. She has set um, very clear, very exact boundaries for herself. And she's like, if somebody doesn't, doesn't meet, you know, like, isn't going to enhance my life, isn't going to bring something to my life and not just take from me, I have no time for them. And so she waited a very, very long time to find somebody like that. Complete mm-hmm. opposite of me. I mean, like <laughs> absolute polar opposite of me. Um, and then there's my second daughter who was in a couple long-term relationships and then she met somebody they dated, um, bought a home together, got a dog for 10 years. And then just right before their 10th, uh, anniversary, I guess. Yeah. Um, dating anniversary, they got married and yeah. And so then I asked her and she was 31 when she got married. Um, and I asked her about children and she's like, I, I don't know. Like my oldest is like, so no, no kids, none at all. Um, the next one, she's like, ah, I just don't know. You were adopted. Her husband was adopted. They're all like, maybe that's the route we want to go because, you know, we just have an affinity for that sort of thing. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that's, that's awesome. Just let's just get some grandbabies going here. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then my youngest, he is, uh, oh, what do you call it? He just wants to save the world. He wants mm. to save the world. And so he found, <sighs> I don't care for my daughter-in-law so much. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> I, I love her. I love her. She, she can, when she allows herself to be her authentic self, she can be a really nice person to be around, but she doesn't see that her authentic self is all she has to be. She always feels like she has to be something more to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, so she comes to, she, and she actually has a, a super similar journey to mine in that she's had four children with four different dads. Um, so she's had lots of relationships, lots of failed relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And her two youngest are six and four. And the four-year-old is my granddaughter um, that she had with my son. So it's our first grandchild. My husband and I we consider, because he has a daughter who's 16, they are our children. We don't do the your children, my children stuff. Yeah. They're our children, our grandchildren. Um, and, uh, but he, he always wants to save somebody. So he saved her from this life. Um, mm-hmm. There, he is... Um, I don't know. I always feel uh, very, when I think about him, 
Like if I think really hard about him, I always get very sad and I always feel like I shortchanged him. Um, cause he was only two and a half when his dad passed away. So he never really knew his dad and all his dad ever wanted when we found out I was pregnant was to have a family. Um, he had grown up in foster care. He had no family. Um, and because of the lifestyle he led, he just never thought that was something that was in the future for him. Mm-hmm. So, um, when it got near the end for him, he was very, very much about, I want to die at home. I want to die with my family around me. Um, and then a few days before he actually did die, he changed his mind and he told his visiting nurse who had been his visiting nurse for the whole time he was sick, you know, that he was too scared to die at home because he didn't want to frighten the children. He didn't want them to see him like that. So he asked his visiting nurse arranged for him to have a respite hospital stay so that the kids and I could kind of have a few days of normalcy. And then he would go be in the hospital for a few days, but um, he was supposed to come home on Monday, but that Sunday was father's day. And um, he, he died on father's day. So when I think about my son, I I wish I'd have made different choices that would have given him a a good father experience because my fourth my third husband was not a good father experience. He never wanted children. He didn't do any of the the things one would expect a father and son to do, or um, there was no like teaching him stuff, uh, how to play baseball, right? Uh, Just how like... to do any of those things. So it was, and he was he was emotionally absent. So yeah. it was just bad. But, you know, he joined the army right out of high school. And I, I don't think that, I don't know. I don't know how, I mean, I get that there are lots of women out there who are single parents who are doing the mom and the dad thing and their parents, their, excuse me, their kids turn out fantastic. I think part of my upbringing, uh, just, I couldn't. I couldn't do that. It didn't, it, it, I couldn't transfer that kind of masculine teachings to him, you know? So he's a, he's so very, very much like a lover, not a fighter, a cuddler. Um, he's very in touch with his feminine side. Um, but he's a man's man who wants to go out there and make his living with his hands and, you know, build things and be in construction and stuff like that. So, I don't think he holds any ill will towards me because of the choices I made and the way he was brought up. I think that's just something I heave upon myself and my counselor mm-hmm. does that too all the time. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's difficult. I mean, I, I know 
addiction is not like sex addiction, particularly. And there's not a lot of genetic components to addiction um, in general. And yet we know that addiction tends to run in families. And a lot of that's just because of that behavior that we see and how that influences us and what that does to us and what that means. And, and so I'm, I always love to hear um, how we can still have really great relationships with family members um, and how those can get better in recovery um, and how we can continue to nurture those relationships. I'm so glad to hear that you have, it sounds like you have amazing relationships with your children. Oh, very much so. Yes. Awesome. So you told us a little bit about what your recovery practice looked like at the beginning. Um, what does your recovery practice look like now? You're, you're into this 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. What, what does recovery look like for you now? So I had gotten to a place where I was comfortable, where I and not complacent, just like mm, everything I was using sex to medicate, every feeling of not being wanted, not being needed, not being important, um, I'm too much, I'm not enough, all of those feelings and all of those scenarios I had in my head that I was trying to medicate with sex, when I met my current husband, um, and we did recovery and I learned so much and I was like, I don't, I don't have those feelings anymore. I feel okay with who I am. I'm okay with who I am. So I was good. Thought he was good. He had a huge relapse, which sent our mm -hmm. marriage and everything into a tailspin. Um, and we wound up, um, going back and digging in to recovery as a couple, as opposed to individual recovery and have come out so much stronger, so much healthier as individuals and as a couple. Um, we had some really, really incredible professionals uh, guiding us through the process of doing, you know, a disclosure letter and um, clarification and impact and empathy. We went through that whole process um, mm -hmm. and we came out so strong, so amazing. And so now my recovery is mostly spiritual. It's just me and God every morning, me and God every night. Um, and I know this doesn't work for everybody. And I know, um, it just, and I, I do my individual therapy and it's, it's what works for me. It's what works for me. Um, yeah, oh, that's all. I mean, in my mind, that's all that matters, right? Like yeah. that you find what works for you, keeps you sober, keeps you moving forward keeps you in a good place. Yeah. I do maintain relationships with, um, so one of the things I did when my husband had his relapse was I joined a partner's group. It was a, mm -hmm. uh, through a private practice and, mm -hmm. um, 
there are two women. Uh, I graduated myself and another woman graduated from the group. And then um, the next lady graduated a little while later. The three of us um, meet every week um, or excuse me, every month um, and just have dinner together and just chat Mm -hmm. about our life and about uh, where we are. They both Mm -hmm. are going through um, more formal 12 step uh, Essanon, which is Mm -hmm. something I did not do. Um, I did mine, all my partner mm, recovery work through a private practice, but um, I've done 12 step in SAA. So in reality, I mean, you can kind of, um, I kind of help them with sort of like how it worked for me when I was looking at this particular behavior, just Mm -hmm. take that and translate it to the thing that you're working on, like whatever your issue is with your partner and how do you um, adapt it to work Mm -hmm. for what you're trying to achieve. But it's mostly just each of our stories is super different and we bring color to the situation and we can just love each other and support each other through all of it. Yeah. I think it's so important to have people in your life who know your story, who know you know, kind of what's been going on, where you're at, what's happening. And it sounds to me like throughout your experiences, you've had people in your life like that. Like, I don't know very many people who would say, oh yeah, let's just uproot our lives. And as a group, we're going to move to Washington state. Right. And like, you, it sounds like you've had people throughout your life that have seen you for who you are and, and have been there to support you. And, and that's, I mean, that in itself is, I think, a gift and a miracle that we have those types of people in our lives. And it sounds like that's what these women do for you. Oh, completely. We, um, we, we celebrate every, each other's successes when somebody's down, when things aren't going well, um, we are right there for each other. Um, we, I don't have, well, I don't have any sisters, so Mm. They're like my sisters. It's a weird, yeah. we would, we would always say when we were in group, um, you know, it's, it's super screwed up how we wound up here, but, <laughs> um, it's a blessing to have found each other. I've, I've heard you say that a couple different times today. Like I hate the fact that I'm an addict and yet like, there, there is this piece that, you know, has brought so much healing into my life, right? Like if I hadn't, I had an addict, would I have done this much work, you know? And I love that perspective. Like how, how do you maintain that perspective? I know a lot of people who struggle in addiction and just with that acceptance piece, right? Cause what I hear from you is like, yeah, I hate this part, but I accept that part. How, how do you maintain that that balance for you? Um, for me, it is, um, I think about 
where I've been in my life. Um, multiple times, my kids and I have been homeless. I've raised, uh, there have been multiple periods in my life where we've lived on welfare. Um, I've been nomadic and uprooted my children multiple times for my own selfish needs and wants. Mm. Um, and when we landed here, and especially in the last 10 years when I've gotten like really healthy, um, and I look back, it is truly, 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 I see every place where I, if you'd have asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, God let me down. God didn't help me. God was nowhere for me. Um, perfect example. My first husband, who was physically abusive and uh, an alcoholic, in a drunken rage one night, he stabbed me and left me lay on the kitchen floor to bleed to death. It's by the grace wow. of God that I did not die. But for a very long time, I said, how did God let that happen? How did God let that happen? There is no God that would let that happen with two little girls sleeping in another room. That That's just not possible. But through recovery and finding my higher power, which for me happens to be God, um, he was there. He made sure I didn't die that night, that I could be there for my children. Mm -hmm. um, there have been multiple times that I've, left my home to go act out and got into a super sketchy situation that I still don't know how I made it out alive. God didn't do that to me. God was there with me and made sure I made it out alive. So now every single day when I get up and I have my time with him and I think about it, I always look for something positive in the negative because that keeps me from feeling like I am too much or not enough because I can say yesterday, Oh, I was so tired. I wasn't energetic enough to be good company in the evening and watch TV. But you know what? I went to bed early. I got a good night's sleep. I woke up this morning and I was on top of the world and I were working from home because of the, COVID-19 situation, but I was on top of my game. I crushed it at work today. So it's okay. Like I, I just, I have to, I have to find a way to spin the negative into something positive or it's too easy for me to rabbit hole. And that would be disastrous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I really appreciate you being here today and telling us and sharing with us your story. Um, I think it's so important that we share our experiences. Are, were there any other um, experiences you've had in recovery, in addiction, getting there, anything else that you feel is important to, to share today? Um, the only other thing that I think is... Uh... Along the same lines of, you know, it's important to get your story out and to 
to um, help the addict who's still struggling. When, uh, when my husband and I went to see our pastor to prepare to get married, you know, we had to kind of come clean about our whole journey to find each other and where we are in our life and everything. And so our pastor knew all of our secrets, right? Mm-hmm. And he was totally cool. He's like, held him close to his heart. He wasn't sharing. And then at some point, a few years later, one of the other people from our church came to him to say, Hey, I'm having these struggles and I'm going through some tough times and da, 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 da. And so he said, you know, you could probably do really well to have another woman to chat with. And she was just like, like, where would I find that? Because she's still thinking, you know, like she's living in a silo and she doesn't understand everything that's happening to her. Similar to when I first met my husband, when he like mm-hmm. gave my thing a name. Um, he said, well, you know, if I was you, I would go talk to this person, this person. Oh, and make sure you talk to Lisa too. I think she'd be a good person to listen to what you have to say. And so she invited me to lunch and she's sitting there across the table and I'm looking at her. And and this woman is typically a super vibrant, um, over the top personality, just like bubbling and exuberant to like the 10th degree. And the person sitting across the table from me was very shy, very reserved, very concerned. And I'm like asking her, what's, what's going on for you? What's, what's the deal? And she came out to me as, being a sex addict. And I was humbled beyond words that she would share that with me. Um, and she has been um, just such a, it's been such a joy to be able to have conversations, like really frank, honest conversations with her and know that no matter what happens, I can turn to her and she would be there for me in the drop of a hat as would I for her. Um, and that our, our friendship was rooted in our faith, which then transformed into, uh, having that second, you know, appendage or component of this shared addiction issue. And then it's, just a blessing. I mean, I really, I know I've used that word multiple times, but, um, it just is, it's, it's like the most incredible opportunity to be able to walk a journey with somebody like that. Yeah. So true. And, and just a, a huge blessing. I know for me, like in my own life, you know, I know that people that I've been able to do that with have, you know, expressed their gratitude, but I keep doing it just because it's my own. Like it's, it helps me so much to walk with another person through this journey. Oh yes, definitely. Yeah. And you learn, right? Like yeah, every single day you learn something new. You take some little nugget of information, um, a practice that somebody uses, 
you hear somebody's pain and then it helps you reflect back on your pain and then look at how much you have grown since. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So would you maybe just summarize what are two or a couple of some of the biggest changes for you personally since being in recovery? Like what are some of those internal changes that have impacted you the most um, while being in recovery? Yes. Um, two of the biggest things that I've learned uh, for me is that I am valuable enough to ask for what I need. Mm-hmm. I, I I matter. I matter. And if I need something a certain way, I just say it. Mm-hmm. Maybe the other person will appease me. Maybe they won't. But I have to be my true authentic self. Um, and I let people see me. I let people see who I really am. I don't lie. I don't make up stories about who I am so that I will not appear to be too much or not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I treasure vulnerability. Um, people, too many people say vulnerability is a negative thing, or if you're vulnerable, that's a bad thing. I am vulnerable multiple times every single day whether it's at work, at home, with my family, with my friends, with complete strangers on a podcast, um, (laughs) I embrace vulnerability because it is the most beautiful aspect of intimacy. And it just has, my life is so much richer for that. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just had this, a moment where you explained that you, you know, that you were, that you had to be your true authentic self and that you edit yourself to not appear either too much or not enough. Right. And I've never heard it explained that way before. And it just, I just felt this shift inside of me personally of like, that is, that is why I do some of the things that I do. Right. Like that, that explains some behaviors from my own addiction is just that whole editing piece of like not being authentic to myself and not wanting to appear too much or, or not enough. So thank you for saying it that way. It just helped me so much just right there. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I just wrote it down. I'm having this huge like moment. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. So to kind of end today, Lisa, like I always ask people that come on and and talk and share their stories, like what message would do you want to share for the women um, in the world that are listening to this? Like early on, you said, you know, sharing it with people like the, our worth recovery podcast averages right now, approximately 800 downloads a day which is pretty awesome because that to me says that there's a lot of women out there who are getting some support and help. What message would you like to leave with them today? Wow. I know, right? Huge at all. No, it's not. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. 
you know, it's cheesy and it's been said a zillion times in a zillion meetings all over the world, but you're worth it. Mm. At the end of the day, you need to invest in you because you're worth it. Nobody else can do it for you. And you can't wait for somebody else to come up and externally validate you and tell you you're worth it. You have to know it in your heart and you have to live it in your daily life. I'm worth this work. I'm worth recovery. I'm worth all of it. Yeah. Thank you. That's definitely what I believe. And that's why I named this podcast, the worth recovery podcast, because we are worth it. And it yeah, does take that. came out of my mouth. I glanced at my screen and went, Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Because I needed that reminder every day for myself. Like I'm worth this. Right. And we all need to remind ourselves all the time that we are worth the effort and the struggle worth recovery. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks again for being vulnerable, for being willing to put your story and experiences out there. I'm excited to be able to share this with all the women in the world who are looking for recovery resources, because the more that we can support each other, the more we can build up each other and, and really feel that value and worth that we have in recovery. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. If you're interested in sharing your story um, on the Worth Recovery podcast, we would love to have you. You can contact me via the website, www.worthrecovery.com, or you can email me directly at amy, A-M-Y, at worthrecovery.com. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.